Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Entrepreneurs in Small Rooms Drinking Coffee. I'm Rob Kennedy, and we're here today with Jordan from Nudge Wards. How's it going? Going pretty well, other than the rainy walk-in, but it's a nice, nice Friday <laughs> it's morning spring. so far. It is spring. At least it's not snowing. Although it was snowing yesterday. I know. I, I know. <laughs> uh, so thanks for getting up so early. Um, why don't you tell everyone who has not listened to the last episode, so just so everyone knows, uh, we have a series on small rooms where we revisit um, startups, entrepreneurs, um, sometimes six months, sometimes two years uh, after they started to see what actually happened. Were they prognosticating correctly? Uh, which is probably the answer is always no. Uh, how do they get there? And so we had the good fortune of having Desi, your co-founder on the show. Um, she's in the, embroiled in some stuff right now. So uh, you're now Desi. Uh, <laughs> but why don't you tell everyone uh, who hasn't listened to the last episode, and do check it out if you want to get some context, what Nudge Rewards is all about, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about you. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so background on Nudge. So we've built a mobile software that allows retailers and food service organizations to be able to more effectively communicate with frontline employees to drive performance. So when we look at the world of a retailer, if you think of Rogers Communications as an example, they have 900 locations spread across the country, about 7,000 employees on the front line. And if you, Rob, are walking into a Rogers location on a Monday morning to buy a new phone, we know that if I, Jordan, am an employee in that Rogers location, it's fundamentally important that I'm knowledgeable on all the products that I want to sell you, that I know how to deliver an exceptional customer experience, and really those frontline employees are the face of the brand. So we've recognized that there is a need and a desire on behalf of frontline employees to have a tool that helps connect them to corporate, that helps allow them to access kind of all the critical information that they need to know to do a great job, and so we built a software solution that allows retailers to do just that. And that's a super hard problem because, I mean, these aren't, you know, paid, you know, $100,000 a year employees. These are relatively, you know, they're all over the place in terms of salaries, leaning on the junior. There's a new phone or new something, in the case of Rogers, for example, coming out every five seconds. Yep. So you can be trained out the hoo-ha, but yeah, being on top of what's the difference and what to do and new pricing packages and there's always new deals. It's hard. The amount of critical information that flows from corporate to the front line is astounding. Like you literally, within telco specifically, a frontline rep can be receiving anywhere between five to seven pieces of information on a daily basis of something critical that that retailer or telco wants them to know. Mm-hmm. So imagine you're frontline, you're a part-time employee, you might be 20 years old, you're making a decent salary. How do you sift through all of that content that's been, excuse me, that's been delivered to you to make sure and prioritize the key things that you really need to know. So, and on the flip side, you have organizations like a Walmart or a Rogers or a Telus or a Mercedes-Benz where they're trying to better understand how to actually mobilize this new generation of the workforce. Mm -hmm. Like there is a massive change in tide here in terms of the individuals that work on the front line. And what we're seeing is a lot of companies need to adapt. They need to better understand how to communicate with this audience, how to support this audience in doing great things. And quite frankly, a lot of companies we talk to are kind of scared. Like you have this new generation that has different ways of thinking, different ways of doing. And so we try to put ourselves in the head of that front line every single day to figure out how we support them. Now, um, for those who are listening, your nudge rewards. We we happened to had a couple an episode a couple couple weeks ago, which is a different version of nudge. Mm-hmm. But you guys named yourself something similar because you're you're uh, the fundamental idea behind nudge, like that concept, 
is what what was uh, partially inspiring now yeah so it's all about kind of nudging behavior change so if we want folks to do something differently behavior change is a series of is kind of a series of a bunch of steps that are required to get someone to think differently or do something differently so we kind of leverage behavior change theory and how we drive behavior change on the front line so anywhere from challenging teams to achieve something to delivering information to build awareness by sourcing feedback we've started to leverage different behavior change theories on how we design our programs to really start to kind of incentivize and drive the particular behaviors we want on the front line but it's all about like just nudging people to do the right thing very easily simple reminders learn about this do this we're, we're no longer in the world where if you send a long memo out in an email, the likelihood that a frontline Gen X employee is actually going to consume that information and want to do something as a result, it's unrealistic now. Plus, all they'll be doing is reading memos. Pretty much. They're not doing anything. Yeah. So, how, you know, what I, what I think is so cool about you guys is that, aside, if, again, listen to the previous episode if you want some context, because you did some corporate, the original thesis was something around corporate social responsibility, yep. but. Um, <clears throat> you came of age uh, in sort of the mobile, when mobile was hip and cool. Mm -hmm. Now it's kind of commonplace, at least in the, like it's not considered um, new at, to technologists, mm -hmm. but to businesses, it's kind of like, what do we do with this thing? They're still yep. trying to figure it out. And what was interesting about your platform, what is interesting about your platform is you, you're sort of, you've bet on push notifications as a, a driver for behavior change and also gamification, mm -hmm. uh, which was super hip and cool in the early 2010s, the, not the, what do you call them, the 10s? I know it's the aughts and then there's the 10s, the teens? I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, and you guys have lived with this, yep. lived with this sort of like theory that's yep. been put into practice for years. Yep. So I guess um, before we get a little bit into you, it's how is that working? Is that actually working? How have you had to, what have you found when you're like setting push notifications, which is considered like Ugh, these days, but doing it right is really hard. Absolutely, like I think, and I'd even, I'll answer the question slightly differently. I'd say mm. society's, one of society's largest behavioral addictions right now is our smartphone. When an individual actually looks at their smartphone, it releases endorphins. Like we used to think about addictions 20 years ago as substance abuse. And given the fact that technology is such an integral part of our lives now, we actually get satisfaction from engaging with technology. It's the reason why people keep the phone on their bed and they wake up in the middle of the night and they look at it. There's some type of satisfaction that when you actually push that button, the screen lights up, you feel some level of comfort. You're connected again. So our thesis behind the business was there are these devices that we're absolutely addicted to. And the other kind of society... Um, society. Another thing that we've recognized is, especially in Canada, Canadians are the hungriest citizens in the world to around loyalty points. Mm -hmm. So we looked at the kind of consumer loyalty world and said the average Canadian collects 8.2, excuse me, participates in 8.2 loyalty programs in Canada. So we've recognized that loyalty incentives are incredibly effective at getting someone to shop at a store or buy one product over another. And so our kind of thesis was, imagine we can marry the effectiveness and the addiction that we share with our smartphone with the power of incentives that work in the consumer world and marry those two things together to actually drive behavior change within the four walls of a business. So within smartphones itself, push, notification, push notifications are absolutely kind of the integral part that we use to mobilize the front line. When, when we send a push out to frontline employees in Rogers, we're getting a 70% 70, 70 response rate within 12 hours of delivering any piece of content. Mm -hmm. And what we've done there is we've gamified the experience. So Rob, if you are working on the front line at Rogers, 
you're supposed to know about this new product that's launching tomorrow. Through Nudge, we deliver you a push notification with critical information. We then reward you with points for reading it. And the next day, if you actually answer a question correctly, we'll reward you with more points. Right. And those points can then be redeemed for some financial incentive. So we've kind of married the effectiveness of consumer loyalty with the addiction of smartphone technology driven by data to help support the front line doing the things you want them to do. It's pretty cool because I think that, you know, the hype around smartphones has sort of died down a little bit. Now it's, I don't know, AI. T today it's AI. Mm -hmm. Last week it was VR. Um, but the, since they're ubiquitous and they're they're not quite sexy, but they are now everywhere. And they are like no human in, uh, you know, a, a wealthy country doesn't have one. Yep. And that's quite powerful because you can, you can, I mean, like, I'm assuming that, for example, your, your customers aren't for buying phones for customers, your, your employees, they're yep. coming with their phones. Yep. yep. Because they assume that they have them and then they can engage with them. That yeah. Way. So it's all organizations get their employees to download it on their personal device, they voluntarily do it. We're That's seeing cool. adoption rates anywhere from kind of 70 to 90%, like it's outrageous. And what I would say, thinking back on your first question there, when we launched this business four years ago, when we walked into enterprise to say, there's this thing called the smartphone. Your employees use them. Can you imagine you could actually take advantage of that to help engage those employees? Smartphones have become pretty much the most important real estate that we now have, that we carry with us 24 seven. Four years ago, organizations, scared we don't have a byod policy we don't want our employees to have a smartphone on the floor it's going to interrupt the customer experience the reality is and we needed to open our eyes across the country and north and south of the border that these staff have smartphones and they're going to continuously use them they're looking at them when they're on the floor in fact a number of different retailers actually have their staff organically going to google and price checking different products with a customer so it was a behavior that was already naturally happening. So don't on the change the behavior. Exactly. Co-opt it. In exactly. A, in a, not to be cynical, it. but it's, yeah. If they're looking at it and they're looking at a social, like Instagram or Facebook, why not have them look at something that's important to the business and actually have them feel that emotional connection with the company as they do with their friends through the social tools they use through smartphones. Yeah, that is truly to the consumerization of IT, right? Yeah. Like truly. Uh, especially it's interesting with those huge businesses. So let, let's take a step back. Um, uh, for those who don't know you, sure. <laughs> this is not your first kick at the can. Uh, why don't you tell everybody uh, what you, so this is not your first startup. No. This is your 27th startup. No. <laughs> uh, I think third or fourth. Third or fourth startup. Yeah. So um, w were they all in the same kind of space? How did you land on? on the Very accidentally. Yeah. So I would say it's always been in the world of behavior change initially within consumer. Um, so about 10 years ago, I started a company that um, designed environmentally focused trade shows. So think about a home show, but everything within that home show was government, NGO, private sector. They would all come together under one roof to inspire consumers to buy products or services that were environmentally friendly. Mm -hmm. So the thesis there was consumers want to be more environmentally friendly. And at the time, my thought was trade shows would be a fantastic tool to inspire behavior change. Grew to be the largest in Atlantic Canada, but what I realized very quickly is there are much more powerful mechanisms to inspire behavior change than trade shows. Right. Business was acquired. Went to help um, build another company that was acquired by Loyalty One, which became Air Miles for Social Change. Mm -hmm. The thesis there was, can we help government take a little bit of the money that they spend on mass advertising that they use to get someone to get a flu shot as an example, and actually use the Air Miles currency to reward individuals for getting a flu shot or buying healthy groceries or taking public transit. Mm -hmm. 
And that is where it opened my eyes. I recognized that incentives were incredibly powerful at driving behavior change. I recognized that the data behind it changes how you market to people. I could understand who you are, your purchasing behavior and deliver content relevant to you with an incentive and you'd be more likely to do something. So fast forward, it went from kind of like a prehistoric mechanism to drive behavior change, then working in Canada's largest loyalty program to use that incentive to drive consumer behavior change. And then I met Lindsay and Desi. And they had this idea of can we use incentives and mobile software to help make the world a better place by partnering with companies to inspire their employees to be more environmentally friendly. And that was kind of the aha moment for me because I saw how effective it can be to drive consumer behavior. And then if we simply just flex that muscle to actually drive employee behavior, could that not be a wonderful thing? Now, what's interesting about it is that, you know, and one day I'm going to write this post, but uh, I think I think the term startup has been co-opted a little bit. and there's nothing wrong with being an entrepreneur. There's nothing wrong with, but I feel to me like startup has a very special definition. I'm not sure I agree with any of the conventional definitions. The first business you started was a, you were an entrepreneur, but you started a, an old fashioned business. It wasn't really a startup, right? I mean, you yeah. didn't get venture money. It wasn't a high growth thing. No, this was. You built a, a, a good business that, that was successful. Yep. The second business was kind of startup-y. Yep. This one is you know, as old, somewhat an old fashioned type of startup, right? Like this is a proper, like going through the thing. So how, how in your, in your experience, is that differed from the first two? I think it's a continuous learning experience. I think, um, as you evolve in your career, you're exposed to different ways to building companies. Uh, I think the old school of thought is build, hit revenue, grow off revenue at some point in time, perhaps raise money to Mm -hmm. really accelerate. I think the new generation of launching businesses has been more focused around um, prove it out, raise money, prove it out more, validate it, raise a lot more money, scale it. And so I think I think it can be a blended too. And I think there's different approaches. And ultimately, like our, our philosophy with Nudge is our market is so large and we have started to hone in on some pretty accurate market fit that we need to fuel. Like we have, we've grown from three of us to 12 to close to 30 now in the last couple of years, and it's still not enough. You could think of any retailer, any food service organization across the entire globe that could use this software to improve their team performance, and we're just trying to keep up. But, and, and let me just insert a quick sure. uh, a disclaimer, like uh, just so, so everyone knows, full disclosure, TWG is an investor yep. in, in Nudge Rewards, so uh, just keep that in mind. Um, so, and I work at TWG in case that's not obvious. Um, so, but again, I, I want to kind of focus on this a little bit. The, the uh, first of all, like there's the startup world in Canada and there's a the startup world globally. And I think in Canada, we, we're more like, do you got revenue? Come, come. Yep. We, don't talk to us until you have revenue. And it has to be a certain shape for us to bother investing. I think, for example, stateside, they might be a little bit like, you got three customers, that's good enough. We'll give you a bunch of money. Yep. Um, how again juxtapose the the non-startup to the startup for you is is aside from like is it a speed thing is it a, are you are you focused on different metrics because you know you ultimately have to raise money or is it all really just the same animal to you and you haven't really felt a material difference yeah i think it's also it, we're building this time around we're building a very different business than i built the first time the first yeah. one was a trade show company yeah it didn't require a ton of capital to build that business to build a technology business it requires capital it's kind of ironic, isn't it? But anyway, yeah. <laughs> like I remember like early days when Lindsay first started the company and we had raised a very small amount of money 
and we thought we could break, or excuse me, build an enterprise-grade technology that Fortune 500 companies could use off this small little pot of gold, we very quickly realized that that's not the case. Like we're working with brands that have tens of thousands of employees and you need like very intuitive, elegant software that's scalable and that requires funds to do so and requires an excellent team to and build it. And to integrate with pretty complicated systems Absolutely. often yeah. that are not, you know, the things that were made last year, they're made like 20 years ago yeah. or 30 years ago. And like, I think the ecosystem, it's like, the, the folks that are on our board, we absolutely love because they think they push us to dream big and they push us to have aspirations to grow this business to become the next big Canadian success story. And you can only do that with the proper team behind the business. And so it's kind of the chicken and the egg of how much revenue can you generate and how quickly can you grow and therefore can revenue simply just continue to feel growth or do you need to raise some money to actually supercharge it? Right. And so we're in this phase now where it's like we need to supercharge it. We need to keep up with the demand and there's different philosophies how to grow the business. But I think when you hit that critical part and you start to feel that market pull and you're pushing your team to work exceptional hours. You, at, there's some point in time where you really need to start to actually think about like how do we really truly build this out of the water. And but so, uh, I'd like to step back sure. for a second yep. and talk about the the between last episode and this episode, which is probably the longest time looking at Nick between the like revisited series uh, ever. I think you guys were like episode five or something like that. Uh, and maybe the audio is terrible, so maybe don't listen to that episode because <laughs> I don't know if Nick did that uh, uh, did that show. But um. Uh, how do you know? How do you know this is the time? This is the time to put fuel on the fire. Because you could have, you know, along the way, I think you had a very large telco when I think Desi was on the show. You could have been like, got a great company, yeah. big brand, yeah. giving us money. Now you throw fuel on the fire. How do you know that is today, yesterday, whatever is the time to do that? Yeah. So I think there's two ways I'll answer it. The first one is we feel the market conditions. So when you look at kind of some of the key trends that we care about right now, I mentioned this earlier, it's like you have a shift of the generation of the workforce right now. You have the digital natives, the millennial generation who are coming into the workforce that are addicted to this type of software that need new tools to figure out how to perform. Okay. Kind of thing number one we care about. The second one is um, we also recognize that the movement towards the non-desk workforce is inevitable. So by 2020, 80% of the global workforce will be non-desk. That's the market that we help solve. It's the fragmented, disparate employees that need to be more connected with the organization. And then the third is the affinity that we have towards our smartphones. So those are kind of the three key market trends where we're like, the stars are aligning. That's fantastic. Organizations are recognizing that. Second to that in terms of the actual business. So when the business was first started, it was around this concept of using software to help engage employees in CSR initiatives. Mm -hmm. Through that experience, we started to recognize that organizations deliver different type of content through Nudge to inspire their employees to do different things such as sell a product. Once we recognize that if we focused on critical information that would actually drive revenue, there was a much more compelling ROI to that business. So that was the pivot. Fast forward two years, um, we've now recognized we have customers that have been with us for a few years. Every single one of them has continued to retain, stay on board. Um, accounts are growing by two, 300% that we're working with. We have more incoming demand than we know what to do with. And so when we, like, when you have the conversation with investors, like it's hard to describe the feeling of market pull, but it's kind of like, it's a gut feeling, you know, when you know, mm. and like we have just this need right now to kind of keep up with all of the work that's landed on our plate. And it's not just managing what's currently on our customer roster. It's keeping up with the amount of kind of inbound interest that's coming as well. 
Okay, because I was gonna I was gonna actually argue with you a little bit because sure. I'm like, the, the 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 first three points you made about uh, mobile workforce, smartphone penetration, whatever. That argument, like that, has be started to become clear since about what 2010, when apps were allowed on the App Store. 2009. Mm -hmm. Now, the the I would argue that that would like there was not critical mass at that point. Yep. Maybe 2012, 2013, 2014. Then everyone has one. Yeah. Um, and then uh, it's just interesting because like you could have argued, at, and then you said two years. It took you a couple years. You've got like loyal customers who keep coming back to you. Yep. Why not a year and a half? Why not a two and a half years? Do, do you know what I mean? Like yeah, it still yeah. doesn't, I think, really hit on the. Uh, other than you said your gut that this is the inflection point. This is the point where you need to. Yeah. Take money. So I'd say. Yeah. So good question. So we went through an experiment where we ran a number of programs across a variety of different verticals to hone in on our value prop and the verticals that we should truly concentrate on. Mm, okay. That isn't a flicking the switch overnight, aha moment, I now know what my product does, I now know what customers want to buy it. That's kind of an evolving process and we methodically tested it in verticals from telco to food service to heavy industry to mining. Okay. So we spent a period of time, about a year, really trying to validate market fit. We then found what we believe to be the three verticals that we wanted to focus on. So the last eight, kind of 10 months, we focused exclusively on those verticals and now we've been seeing very exciting traction. I see. So it kind of was our hypothesis, we want to test, understand our hypothesis, hone in on the verticals that we believe based on the data and the experiment that we should focus on, hammer out those verticals and we're now seeing the success. And so that's where it's like, okay, now it's time. Okay, you have a thesis, it's been yeah. proven, let's go. Yeah. So two, two questions to that. And the first is, why, um, why does it matter? Why, does a ver why is vertical the right way to do it? If anyone comes to you and they're willing to pay and they're an enterprise, isn't that acceptable? I think Can that's you tell them in sales sometimes? Pardon me? Can you tell I do sales sometimes? <laughs> I think that's, to be honest, where some companies probably go to die. Yep. Um, I think if you opportunistically try to take a deal from everyone and anyone, you're never going to be able to hone your product for a very specific purpose. Right. Um, we personally experienced that. Like We were running programs across seven different verticals at one point, and they were all fairly successful, but some were more specifically successful. So we looked at those seven verticals, we looked at the market size of those verticals and we said, these are the ones that were delivering the most success, therefore we should concentrate on those verticals. Um, That's really rational. <laughs> no, but I'm serious, like that. It, it's rational at this point. Yeah. The process isn't always entirely rational. No, so but how did you, how did you even, at what point did you say, oh, hold on a second? Because I mean, you know, I think when, when we talked to Desi a couple years ago, you had maybe one large customer sure. at the time, uh, you know, with a startup, it's hard because you're trying to find a customer. Once people start paying you for a thing, you're like, I think I've got a thing. Yeah. You start to build up your customer base with what you think is going on. At what point do you take a step back and like look at your business and say, this is kind of a shotgun thing, but yeah. these things are doing well. How do you know when you- You need to be brutally honest with yourself. Okay. You need to- Is it you guys, the co-founders staring at each other? Or is it having outside advisors say, what are you I, doing? Yeah, I think it's a blend of the, okay. I think it's a blend of the two. I think that, if you're not going to be honest with yourself and you're not going to have a critical view at your business and take the rosy colored glasses off, you're never going to be successful. You need to learn from your customers, the ones that have succeeded and the ones that have failed, and you need to learn from every possible experience. Mm -hmm. And if we just go down this process of any type of deal lands on our plate, we're going to work with you. How are you ever going to build domain expertise? How are you ever going to build best practices and how you launch within that particular vertical? It just doesn't make sense, especially in an environment where you have limited resources as well, remember. so. We looked at 
all of the data, we looked at all of the results, we looked at all the information around the size of the market, and we had to have a very honest conversation with ourselves to say, where are we gonna put the flag in the ground? And that's a risk too, right? Like it's, you could go after 10 different verticals and hope to knock them all out of the park, but if you look at many of the success stories across the world, like they've focused on two or three key verticals and they've owned them. And so that's our strategy. We have three verticals that we wanna put the flag in the ground, take market leadership position, put all of our resources behind achieving that. And once we've achieved that, we'll start to opportunistically, excuse me, opportunistically look at other verticals. Right, so how, how did you know what in your mind, at least at a high level, was the, the no criteria? Yes criteria is easy. How do you know who to say no to? Um, so we went through a pretty big process between management team, board members, some advisors, where we had a bunch of different pieces of criteria that we believe um, were what a what a good nudge customer looks like. Okay. Did um, you did you create that persona? Yeah. The idealized persona and say this doesn't like certain number of uh, notifications, certain number of staff engagement, a certain amount of Yeah, so it was like who's what generation is in this workforce? Mm -hmm. Do they have access to smartphones? Um, where's the budget coming from? What's the likelihood that we can have a strong financial impact on that organization? So we had all these different criteria points that we then put all the different verticals up to and the customers that we had run with and the prospects that we had talked with. Mm -hmm. um, and we also tried to validate it with the market and with customers and those around the business. And I think that exercise then led us to kind of the conclusion that we needed to focus. Focus, focus, focus is mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. Like building tech, servicing customers, what verticals you go after. If you don't focus, you're gonna run around in circles. And the only way to actually know if you're making progress is to give yourself some type of focus. So the way that we run our business now is we do kind of like 100 day war plans. We wanna achieve this over the next 100 days. That's gonna be our plan. We're gonna look back in 100 days to see whether or not it worked or it didn't work. But if you try to change that plan every two weeks, you're never gonna march the ball any that much more forward. Mm -hmm. So focus, focus, focus. And the second thing is like, it is, I encourage people should say more, a hell of a lot more than, sorry, people should say no a hell of a lot more than they should say yes. yes. It's easy. I mean, no. It's easy to say yes to a big bag of money that a customer wants to work with you. But if it's going to pull you off your vertical focus, and if it's going to stretch your CS team to have to reinvent the wheel to launch an entirely different industry, the opportunity cost there just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And I think... It's really interesting because it, it all makes sense in, in, in principle when you're talking about it, that just the number of startups I've worked in or it's not work easy. with, it's, it, it's, it's not it easy. is a very, un, it's not clear yeah. why, why to say no. So what, what do you do with the ones that you like, okay, I know you're in um, chicken tanning, but that's not our vertical. <laughs> uh, and I know you paid us a lot of money. <laughs> what the hell that is? <laughs> Try to come up with something that doesn't accidentally trample on a business that you're working in. Uh, do you, do you, you, say, do you know a prospect that does chicken tanning? <laughs> there's big chicken. I can tell you that. Um, but do, does uh, do you do you straight up fire them? Do you just like keep taking their money and then just don't support them? If, what do you do with the if ones? If there's that you say an organization no that comes across as an opportunity that is attached to a fairly large vertical that we believe that we perhaps could have some element of success, we'll take that to the management team and we'll have a conversation and say, does this make sense? I'm talking about the other way around. You 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 you've you've had the sort of uh, come to Jesus moment about who your what your verticals are. Up, I'm assuming you've taken customers that are not in your vertical yep. up to that point. Yep. Do you fire them? Do you so just have. is that what you do? Yeah. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> if it's pushing water uphill, yep. if it's um, 
so we've we've parted ways with a customer primarily because it still added value but it was taking very di- or very important energy in our business off of where it should have been no okay so there's like customers who are maybe in the right vertical yeah. generically who might be bad customers then there's like you f- picked your area of focus and you said okay chicken tanning not our area of focus yep. that guy pays us you know we get million dollars a year in revenue from yep. the guy but it's we're in you know food yep so oh boy uh anyway i've i know it so painted myself into this weird quagmire but to answer your question if there's a customer a legacy customer that is totally off vertical focus that is requiring time and energy and it's pushing water uphill see you later but if it's just like paint like money coming in they're using the product just that's fine we have just leave it yeah, we have some legacy customers okay. that are using nudge that are running with it themselves that require very little energy and support so on our end so going. why not but the important why not is it's a vertical that we do believe we could focus on right once we've taken leadership in the other ones okay so, so it's still about focus it's still exactly. about still keeping in within the wheelhouse absolutely and they're like we're strategically still keeping it alive because it is successful mm-hmm. but it's off it's off focus in terms of like the two or three that we truly want to now in the last so when we last left Desi I think it was I guess a couple years ago and you guys had uh, at least one or two seed rounds are you where where have you been in terms of investment yeah like I know you guys are yeah 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 so um, we brought in some VC money last fall um, through the wonderful people at bright spark ventures Mm -hmm. Um, so Mark Pinker sits on our board and um, yeah we're we're very lucky to have them as a partner. Mm-hmm. I think you share conversations with VCs north and south of the border, and I think money's money, but money with great people is entirely different. And Mark has built um, some pretty great companies in the past and has had some pretty good success. And so he kind of joins our board to push our thinking, to inspire us to dream bigger, but also to actually build the plan to achieve the market potential. So raise VC money in the fall. Um, and we're was, at, was, that, was that considered a Series A? Uh, not really. Our first like price a, round. First price round. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we're actually going to be doing kind of an official Series A this year, which is going to be um, kicking off quite soon, actually. Uh, so we're kind of again to my earlier comment: focus, limited resources, a lot of demand, big market. Those are kind of the conditions to so say. You picked a so the fall you picked a Canadian venture capitalist yep. to be on your board, not an American or. Israeli or whatever is that because of the market that you're in and the customers that you have or is it um, just a of in the universe of venture capitalists the deal was pretty good and you guys got along you were simpatico in your vision yeah so great deal convenient speed to close was something that was important to us okay. I think a challenge with raising money is the time it takes to do so and you got I, my next question but I, okay go ahead again <laughs> taking some key personnel from the business and focusing them on raising versus building the company, that's a massive challenge. And that exists everywhere. Like, Mm -hmm. we want our team to be working on building a fantastic company, not necessarily having to spend a bunch of time shaking hands and raising money. It's still a necessity at some point in time. Um, So we found the right partner, the right deal, and it moved very quickly. And so it made sense. And we had kind of socialized it with a few other VCs and it just accelerated very quickly. Um, a number of our customers are kind of north and south of the border, but we are focusing heavily on the US this year. Okay. And so we've obviously been building relationships with a bunch of VCs um, south of the border as well. And so as we look at this next round, um, it's very likely that there will probably be a combination of north and south. 
so yeah, you as I said, uh, you you sort of pre uh, pre guess my next question. So especially when you're raising, uh, I guess it's a Series A in this particular yep. case. Um, now you're in investment mode, and especially if you're going, you know, shopping around, it's absorbing brain power time to yep. do pitch decks and whatever. Yep. Uh, how how are you a managing that, and b how do you um, do you, like what are your criteria for a fit this time? Is it like help us break into new markets and or like you know um, the size of a raise in the states tends to be larger than at least yep. so far than the sizes of raises in Canada. Yeah. So in terms of managing time, energy, resources, we're trying to time box it. So in terms of the prep that's required to pull together the story, um, we gave ourselves a certain deadline and a certain amount of time that we wanted to dedicate to doing that. A lot of the data, we've got a fantastic CFO and a fa fantastic board that all of the data is there. It's just a matter of kind of pulling together in a narrative and a deck. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're running a really tight roadshow. So we are planning to kind of have a strict deadline on when we want to close it. We know which cities north and south of the border we're visiting on which dates. We're prearranging all of those meetings and we're planning to run a very kind of methodical, this is what it is. We've already met all of these VCs in the past so they mm -hmm. know that this is coming. Mm -hmm. This is what it is. This is when we're closing. This is what we're thinking. Do that over a two week period and try to enforce some level of time sensitivity around it mm -hmm. just so that we can get back to building the business. Like I think on average right now, the average series A takes six months yeah that's why i was <clears throat> and so at the same time it's like if you've built the reason why we want to get back to just building the company is like investors want to invest in a great company and so that's all that matters at the end of the day it doesn't matter how many hands you can shake or how many people you can have a coffee with it's if you're building a great company you're going to be able to raise money and i think they actually respect the process that we're putting in place here because it's just not arbitrary shotgun. It's yeah. like, no, 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 you're it's like methodical. methodical. This one will be here. This is when we want to meet. This is when we're hoping to close because we want to get back to building this great company and deploying those funds. Like right. when you look at raising the money, it's like, it's all how you actually end up leveraging and utilizing that money, right? Well, that's actually, uh, you alluded to it earlier, but um, what do you plan on using? Have you, have you said the amount of money you're raising or not yet? Not yet. But what, you know, a Series A, especially if you're courting American investors, yep. tends to be not a small amount of money. Yep. It usually is like 10 million or something north of 10 million or something like that in the, it's not, it's not a 500,000, it's not a million dollars. This yep. is like whatever. And then uh, cognizant of two things. One is uh, Series A crunch that was so exciting and popular a couple of years ago. Are you seeing any of that noise where you're like, there's a lot of people going for Series A and you're fighting? Uh, not really. Not I think market evidence. conditions right now, like I think the mar I think the conditions of the market right now are pretty strong. In Money's terms of just still money. too cheap yeah. <laughs> for them to not, and plus they have to deploy. It. Yeah. Uh, second, second is um, when you whatever that number is, it's not a trivial amount of money. Yep. You guys have been around for quite a while. Yep. Now you're about to get a huge cash injection. How, how are you thinking of segmenting your money? Is, is most of it? Uh, building out your customer base? Is it product development? Is it yep. salespeople, marketing? How are you thinking so about it? So that's the art too, right? Like right. This is, I think, where companies either succeed or fail is when they truly push the pedal down in a very meaningful way. So what we've done is we have an understanding of the end game on a particular timeline. So by, call it 2018, mm -hmm. we want to hit this number in ARR booked. Okay. If we work our way backwards from that, we know based on the sales rep in the business, What's their quota? What's the likelihood of them hitting that quota? Therefore, mm -hmm. how many sales reps do we need to hit that number? Okay. So this that kind of dictates how much money we would deploy around sales. And then to support that, there's kind of five or six other support roles that would be used to kind of support those sales guys. So now we know how much money we would spend on sales, what type of talent we would hire for what role to hit that ARR. 
The second element would be customer success. Based on growing customers to that, or sorry, excuse me, in terms of hitting that ARR number, mm-hmm. how many customers does that mean? Currently, if we look at our data, how many customer success reps can manage a customer? So that gives us an understanding of how many people that we need. And there's also industry standards around what percentage of recognized revenue you should spend on customer success. Oh, cool. okay. So we now know how much we need to spend on sales to hit our target. And we can do that quite accurately now because we have quota querying reps that we have data around. We know how many customer success people we need to manage those customers. And then we looked at the tech. And we said, we want tech by this particular date to be moving three times faster. In order to do that, what type of a team do we need? Mm-hmm. So we then worked backwards to say, we want call it three or four different teams. Some are features, some are scale, some are maintenance. And we then figured out what roles do you need in that team? And that kind of dictated the tech spend. So we have a pretty methodical approach at how much we need to raise to hit a particular number and how we would deploy that Mm -hmm. and how that would actually impact recognized revenue throughout that process. So how much we would actually be bringing in to also support that growth. I think it's pretty rational. (laughs) <laughs> we just went through this. <laughs> no, I think that's a really, you know, I think people are like, oh, they raised a million, 10 million, 100 million dollars. It's like, okay, well, th- I think people assume orgies happen as soon as that happens. <laughs> but I, I think it's it's quite, quite, and, and in your opinion, um, is that a thing to be celebrated? Uh, I'm just curious. There's, I feel off. like there's a religious, religious, uh, people have religious stances on this, which is, do you celebrate the fact if you, when you guys end up raising, do you celebrate that? Is that something you announce and make a big deal of? Or are you like, that's <laughs> that's great. It's it's I've, I've just pre- taken money from someone. Yeah, I prefer to celebrate it internally with the team. Yeah. I think it's a, a milestone in the company to get us to a point where we can attract significant money into the business. And I think culture is number one in terms of the success of a business and thanking our team for all the hard work, blood, sweat, and tears that they did to get us to that point where we could raise the money and push the pedal down. Total celebration. Do we need to go and celebrate it to the world? If, Should the world be celebrating it, I guess? Should Canada be celebrating a raise? Um, I think they should be, maybe not necessarily on the raise, but the success of, and like the impact, what it actually means. Um, I think Canada has done a fantastic job in the last couple of years in terms of the ecosystem around tech. And I think the more that we c- celebrate and support each other, the more we're going to be successful, both celebrating the successes and, the fil- and learning from the failures. But like put in a press release that we raised a bunch of money, don't as much care about that, put in a press release that we can now service our customers better and scale our offering to more customers and help them do their job better, that's something that's special. Right, cool. That's pretty uh, pretty good way to end the show. <laughs> cool, so if people wanna check out Nudge Rewards, where do they go? www.nudgerewards.com. It's the first time I've ever said that before, <laughs> or maybe in about 10 years. Um, but yeah, feel free to check it out, obviously. Don't if, go to the App uh, Store. Go to nudgerewards.com. Yeah, yeah. That's Nudge, where you start. Nudgerewards.com. Right. And um, always happy to share a conversation. So right. thank you. You can also just get .ai for no reason, just because it's hip. Yeah. Nudgerewards.ai. You Don't go there. our office, Nudge their office, the other Nudge, yeah, exactly. whichever one it No, Nudgerewards.ai. Yeah. It's a different one. <laughs> uh, well, thanks very much for coming on the show. I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks to Nick Kuhn for producing the show. Thanks to TWG for sponsoring us. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. 